Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 25, Leviticus chapters 17 and 18. Um, as we resume our study of Leviticus 17, we left off last time on a discussion of the topic of blood. And the context was that while up to the great flood, man could on occasion kill animals, that it was really only for the purpose of sacrifice to the Lord. Animals as a food source was prohibited until Noah received specific instructions presented to us in Genesis 9 after the earth had been purged of wickedness by means of the floodwaters, that man was now free to kill and eat any kind of animal. However, Genesis 9, verse 4, did place some rules about um, food. And it says that um, while it's now okay for man to eat the flesh of living creatures, one must not eat the blood from that creature because life is in the blood. Now, let's face it. Even early man knew that if somebody got cut and their blood flowed out of their body in sufficient quantities, that person would die. No blood, no life. Indeed, life was in the blood quite literally. And in addition... While God made blood unsuitable for food, he dedicated blood for the sole purpose of atonement. Okay. The pattern was obvious. One was not allowed to eat something so sacred as the source of atonement, blood. The spiritual purpose for blood was life and atonement. So, to use blood for any other purpose was against God's will. Now, what we need to grasp from what I've told you concerning this prohibition about shedding blood or eating blood is that this blood prohibition applies on a number of levels. Now, in a nutshell, the term shafach dam, all right, Hebrew meaning shed blood or just blood for short, applies to most any case whereby blood is misused. Biblically speaking, murder is a misuse of blood because it ends life. Drinking the blood of an animal is a misuse of blood because blood is for atonement, not sustenance. Taking the life of an animal outside of the sacred, sacred tabernacle grounds and in a manner other than a God-ordained ritual sacrifice was a misuse of blood because atonement was only available inside those holy grounds. Sacrificing an animal to another god was a misuse of blood because a living creature that our holy God created was being used to glorify a demon, okay, a, another created being, or frankly, even a figment of somebody's fertile imagination. Okay. And there are several more examples that we don't need to go into for right now. 
So let's apply our new understanding about the nature of the crime of blood or shedding blood, shafah dam, to this to our to the New Testament for for just a few minutes. In in that watershed Jerusalem Council meeting of 49 A.D., when Saint Paul went to James the Just, Jesus' brother, who was at that time the head of the church in Jerusalem to ask the Jewish leadership of the Messianic movement to relent from first requiring Gentiles to convert to Judaism in order to worship Christ and also to establish some rules for Gentiles to follow that would satisfy the Jewish purity provisions and thereby allow Gentiles and Jews to worship together in the Jewish synagogues, the outcome was such that many restrictions were lifted. And some basic requirements were put onto the Gentiles, and many of these edicts have sadly been misunderstood and misapplied by church leaders. Now, among those requirements for Gentile believers, as recorded in Acts 15.20, one says that Gentiles are to abstain from blood. Acts 15.20 But that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. The phrase from blood is exactly what I've been talking about. It means Gentiles are to refrain from any misuse of blood. From murder to not drinking blood, to not draining blood, or rather draining meat of all of its blood, to sacrificing an animal to another god. Whatever scriptural laws and regulations existed about blood were to be obeyed by the Gentile contingent of the church. And while I won't get into it right now, it also includes... Whatever Jewish provisions were in effect at that time concerning where an animal was to be killed and and in the proper manner. Now, the rules about animal slaughter actually changed a bit from the time of Leviticus after Joshua led Israel into the land of Canaan and after it wasn't so convenient to take an animal to the tabernacle and have a priest slaughter it. Okay, let's, let's go back to the texts of Leviticus 17. Let's reread Leviticus 17 to get things started today. Leviticus 17. Adonai said to Moshe, Speak to Aharon and his sons and to all the people of Israel and tell them that this is what Adonai has ordered. When someone from the community of Israel slaughters an ox, lamb, or goat inside or outside the camp without bringing it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to Adonai before the tabernacle of Adonai, he's to be charged with blood. He has shed blood. And that person is to be cut off from his people. The reason for this is so that the people of Israel will bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice out in the field so that they will bring them to Adonai to the entrance to the tent of meeting to the priest and sacrifice them as peace offerings to Adonai. The Kohen priest 
will splash the blood against the altar of Adonai at the entrance of the tent of meeting and make the fat go up in smoke as a pleasing aroma for Adonai. No longer will they sacrifice to goat demons before whom they prostitute themselves. This is a permanent regulation for them throughout all their generations. Also tell them, when someone from the community of Israel or one of the foreigners living with you offers a burnt offering or sacrifice without first bringing it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to sacrifice it to Adonai, that person is to be cut off from his people. When someone from the community of Israel or one of the foreigners living with you eats any kind of blood, I will set myself against that person who eats blood and cut him off from his people. For the life of a creature is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for yourselves. It is the blood that makes atonement because of the life. This is why I told the people of Israel, none of you is to eat blood, nor is any foreigner living with you to eat blood. When someone from the community of Israel or one of the foreigners living with you hunts and catches game, whether animal or bird, that may be eaten, he's to pour out its blood and cover it over with earth. For the life of every creature, its blood is in its life. Therefore I said to the people of Israel, you're not to eat the blood of any creature because the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it will be cut off. Anyone eating an animal that dies naturally or is torn to death by wild animals, whether he is a citizen or a foreigner, is to wash his clothes, bathe himself in water, and he'll be unclean until evening. Then he'll be clean. But if he doesn't wash them or bathe his body, he will bear the consequences of his wrongdoing. Okay, in the first four verses, we're told that domestic animals used for food had to first be a part of the sacrifice. And this had to be performed in accordance with all of the carefully crafted, God-ordained sacrificial rituals, which meant this had to happen at the tabernacle. So if someone broke this law, then they had committed blood or blood guilt, and they were therefore subject to being cut off. Karet in Hebrew, by God. And verse 5 makes it clear that this ordinance wasn't a preemptive strike, so to speak. The Israelites currently were killing animals from their flocks and their herds out in open fields thinking that that didn't count. The idea in their heads was if they were outside of the camp of Israel then God's rules about blood didn't apply out there. Further, the Israelites very likely were building small crude altars and even offering some of these animals to the gods they had learned to worship back in Egypt or even sacrificing to Jehovah thinking they still had the right to do so. Remember, until the establishment of the priesthood that had only weeks earlier been ordained by God, the senior firstborn of each Hebrew family acted as the one who performed rituals for the family. So let us remember that these laws about blood were for foreigners as well, the mixed multitude who were among the Hebrews as well as for the natural descendants of Jacob. Now, while 
Why do you suppose that while Israel was in the wilderness, that God would require all animals used for food to be first offered as a sanctuary sacrifice, and then after they entered the land of Canaan, he decided to allow some slack. Now, as everything, with everything else we've witnessed, this was going to be a teaching process. Jehovah was in the midst of wringing 400 years of Egypt out of Israel and showing those non-Israelites who lived among his people that were, there was more to him than just bringing judgments upon nations who came against him. It was, it was going to take 40 years out in that wilderness for Israel to adopt some new ways while forgetting some of their old ways. And once they got into Canaan and spread out over that land, it was nearly impossible that all meat would be brought on a several days journey to the place of the tabernacle and then years later to the temple in Jerusalem for slaughter, particularly when it just involved food. However, the lesson had been taught and Jehovah's requirement for sacrifices to be made only at the place he designated remained intact with no deviations allowed. Now, for those of you who have paid close attention in our Leviticus study, we get an interesting nuance in verses 5 through 8. Thus far, we have studied five basic classifications or categories of sacrifices. The Olah, the Mincha, the Hatat, the Asham, and the Zevah Shlamim. And each of these sacrificial categories was put there for a precise reason. Each had a precise ritual. Each had a certain occasion upon which it was to be performed. Some of these classes of sacrifice were mandatory. That is, they were not voluntary. And they had to be performed when the law says they must be or there was an unpleasant consequence. Now, others of these sacrificial categories were voluntary. And in general, the worshiper could decide for himself when and if he wanted to offer it to the Lord. In verse 5, the reference as to the type of sacrifice that was to be brought before the Lord is a zevah shlamim. The significance of this is that it is the kind of offering that can be brought to the Lord most times at the decision of the worshiper. So an Israelite who decided that it was time for his family to eat some meat could bring a Zevah Shlamim offering at his whim and go home from the sanctuary with the remainder of that animal on his shoulders. Okay. Further, some of the offerings had to be completely destroyed by fire. And others, portions that weren't burned up, had to go to the priests. So the worshiper in some of these offerings didn't receive any of the meat. The, the Zevah Shlamim, however, was of a kind that provided for the bulk of the sacrificial animal to go to the worshiper. So as I mentioned many months ago, for this and other reasons, the Zevah Shlamim sacrifices were undoubtedly 
the most numerous sacrifices performed, at least while they were out in the wilderness, because they liked barbecue. Now, verse 8 makes it clear that all these regulations also apply to the foreigners living among Israel, as well as the natural Israelites. And although it kind of gets lost in translation, verse 8 is, in essence, making clear that the entire range of sacrifices, every category, with no exceptions, must be performed at the tabernacle. Do you see where it says there, Say to them further, if anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who reside among them offers a burnt offering or a sacrifice. You see that? Well, the burnt offering in the original Hebrew is the word Olah. And the word sacrifice that we see written in English was the Hebrew word Zevah. Short for Zevah Shlamim. The Olah is the chief of all sacrifices. And therefore, it, all of that sacrifice goes to the Lord. Not even the priests get any of that meat. Further, it's the most strictly mandatory of all the sacrifices. The Zevah, Shlamim, is at the opposite end of the spectrum from the Ola. The Zevah is the one that is in most cases purely voluntary. Okay? And it can be offered as often or as seldom as the worshiper decides. And it is the one sacrifice that the worshiper keeps the largest portion of meat. So the idea here of saying, if someone offers a burnt offering, an Ola, or a sacrifice, a Zeva, it's like our American custom of saying, from A to Z, or from soup to nuts. Okay? It just indicates it's all-inclusive. Every category. Now, we can't just pass up those words of verse 7, which says that the people will no longer offer their sacrifices to the goat demons of the wilderness. Obviously, the Israelites were offering sacrifices to the goat demons at this point in history. It's even more obvious, since we just finished studying Leviticus 16 and Yom Kippur with its scapegoat ritual, and it's obvious that there is this link between the Oz Azel to whom the scapegoat was sent and the goat demon referenced here in Leviticus 17. Now remember that Oz Azel and the goat demons were thought to be evil powers that ruled the wilderness regions. Now I think in some sense or another they were quite real. Not that they were necessarily demons that looked like goats, but indeed there were some sort of spiritual powers and principalities whose domain was the barren desert regions, the wilderness. And the people, Israelite and foreigner alike, were sacrificing to those demons and God says, stop it. Bring it to a halt. Now further, in the scapegoat ritual... When the scapegoat was set out to Azazel, it was by no means a sacrificial offering to the goat demons. Something that's being prohibited here. Actually, it was the opposite. Rather, the scapegoat, if you'll recall, was loaded up with all of Israel's sin 
and uncleanness and sent back to the evil one out in the wilderness. It was all flung right back into his face as a reproach by God and proof of Jehovah's invincibility and his power over Satan and all of his demons. Then in verses 10 through 12, we're again told what we've previously discussed, that no one among the entire throng of the people of the Exodus are to partake of blood or they will be cut off. Now, verse 13 starts a new instruction and it involves the killing of non-domestic animals, wild animals. So the first 12 verses of chapter 17 are referring to domestic animals. Approved for food. Approved for sacrifice. Which is entirely different from wild animals that can be used for food but never for sacrifices. Now the idea is that when man hunts animals, deer, antelope, birds, he He's not being required to drive his prey towards the sanctuary grounds and kill it there. Okay? But neither can a man drink the blood of a wild animal just because it's wild. This blood provision applies to all meat. The blood of a wild animal is not suitable for sacrifice. So it has to be drained from the animal and buried in the ground. The life, which is in the blood, must be returned to the dust. Which is to return it to God. And never used for food. Blood is either to be used for God's purposes or it's to be disposed of. It's never for men to decide. And the penalty for disobeying God's command concerning wild animal blood is just as serious is for the misuse of domestic animal blood. The violator is to be cut off. Well, verses 15 and 16 deal with what must have been an everyday matter for these refugees from Egypt. Something they would encounter both out in the wilderness and after they'd settled in the promised land. What do you do with a valuable or a wild animal that's died naturally or it's been killed by another animal and you stumble across it. After all, meat was an expensive commodity and they weren't about to waste it. I mean, interestingly, in these passages about stumbling across a, a dead animal, it's not that the person is actually instructed against eating the flesh of an animal that was killed in those manners. It's just that the person who does so becomes unclean. And that kind of uncleanness lasts only until the end of the current day. Sunset. Until that person takes a ritual bath and washes his gar garments. If a person takes those steps to become clean again, then all is well. But if he doesn't, then we're told in verse 16, he will bear his guilt. Let's take a moment and understand this idea, he shall, he shall bear his guilt comment, because we're going to see it many times throughout the Torah and the Old Testament. 
the idea as concerns our current case is this. If a person chooses to eat the flesh of an animal that has died of natural causes or maybe from an accidental death, maybe it fell off of a cliff. Or it was attacked and it was killed by another animal, then that person has not done something against God. God actually permits it. However, if a person chooses to do this allowed thing, there is a mild consequence that goes with it in that he becomes ritually impure for a few hours. And he must take a ritual bath and he must wash his clothes. There is no sin or transgression here. God really isn't even saying he'd rather you didn't do it. Yet upon choosing to eat the flesh of an animal that died that way, there are conditions. By the way, here's another of those examples that shows that uncleanness and sin are not necessarily directly linked and they are certainly not synonyms. The person in this particular scenario becomes unclean for a short time, quite literally a few hours, but he's committed no sin. It's, it's, it's actually a lot like a woman who's on her monthly cycle who becomes unclean. She's not considered in a state of sin. If you follow those conditions, it says, laid out by God, then there's no problem. But if you don't, now you've transgressed against God. Not because you ate the meat that was killed in that manner, but because you failed to follow his ordained purification procedures. So, to bear the guilt means you are guilty of trespassing against God for failing to follow his procedures and now there will be a judgment of some sort. The exact punishment, if any at all, the time and the place, all are completely at Jehovah's prerogative. Further, since you now bear the guilt, you must now go make an atoning sacrifice. Something that would not have been required if all you had done was follow the ritual purification procedures. Let's move on to chapter 18. When we read chapter 18, we're going to be reminded of Leviticus chapter 15. A lot. Because human sexuality is front and center in these verses. Now, when one takes the time to read the Holy Scriptures, more than just a few verses at a time, we soon find that human sexuality plays a huge role in the Bible. Why? Because sexuality is the basis of propagating physical life a physical life that God created to operate and multiply in just that way. We can't just get around it. We are male and female. We're very different from one another. And God has put a nearly irresistible attraction between the sexes. God has given us sex not only for procreation, but also for joy and for pleasure, provided... It's within the bounds of marriage. And as is the case among humans, we, unfortunately, almost always, abuse the wonderful gifts Jehovah has given us. Sometimes, 
the abuse is out of misunderstanding. At other times, it's out of ignorance, but more often, it's just flat-out disobedience. Okay? Or a very misguided belief that as Christians, God's commands simply don't apply to us. Now, as much as we of the church talk of and hope and pray for unity, what we find in the Torah and really in the New Testament if we read it and trust it for what it says, is this constantly expanding God pattern of division, election, and separation as the means to a godly type of unity. This is Yehovah setting up dynamics and rules of what is good, what promotes godly, defined life, what is holy, and what is eternal. All else is against, opposite of these divine governing dynamics and rules. Evil, death, sin, and the short-lived physical existence So, Jehovah divides all things into two basic categories. For him and against him. Then he elects whom or what will be included in each category. Then he makes a deep chasm, an impassable barrier between the two sides. And he separates. It is not God that is constantly seeking physical unity in our physical world. It's man. The Lord seeks spiritual unity. Man has always tried to put back together those things that God has divided and separated. God draws sharp distinction. Man wants to blur them. He wants to remove those distinctions altogether. We have a name today for drawing up sharp distinctions. It's called intolerance. In the current world, intolerance is a bad thing. Better, says our secular humanist planet, is tolerance, whereby the distinctions are all done away with. Nimrod's rebellion at the Tower of Babel revolved around trying to physically unify people instead of allowing them to be divided and separated as God wanted to happen. No, this is not a polemic against unity in the body of Christ. God is unity. He is one. He is echad. But that's entirely different than our human notion of unity, which has so severely infected the church that other than the buildings where we meet, there's precious little difference anymore between what we as believers choose as a way of life and what everyone else chooses. Our notion today of unity is more akin to consensus, which is but agreements achieved by compromise, with a goal of universal agreement and single-mindedness. We, we divide ourselves up into smaller and smaller groups 
until we feel sufficiently comfortable, then we try to unite everybody in that group via groupthink and then just hope it'll grow. Okay. Think of it as humanity or the body of Christ all standing in an enormous circle holding hands singing Kumbaya. But that's not the kind of unity that God is or that God is seeking. Rather, Yehovah wants us to be of one spirit with Him, with Christ. If I'm of one spirit with Christ and you are of one spirit with Christ, then you and I are in unity. I don't hold your hand. I hold Christ's. You don't hold my hand. You hold Christ's. Then we're unified. It's an enormous difference between the two. One is a method, in many senses, of group control, which is man's way. The other is how the Lord comes into a spiritual relationship with us. His way. So, what we're going to witness in Leviticus 18 is yet another chapter in this ongoing biblical saga of God setting up that which is good and holy and then separating it from that which he deems is unclean and evil. And as his holy and set-apart nation Israel is to follow the one and forsake the other, just as we are to do, just as we who are those who have been grafted in to Israel by faith in Yeshua are to do exactly the same thing. Hang on to the holy, stay separate from the unclean. Now, another thing we're going to see undergo further development in this chapter is the family unit. Here we'll find Jehovah's definition of who's included in a family and who's not. Who is the head and the focus of the family unit and who is not? The Bible from beginning to end revolves around the patriarchal family. That is, the men, the fathers, are to be the leaders and the responsible party, by the way, okay, of the family unit. Now, I'm not going to go into some kind of politically correct apology that women are not named as the head of the family unit. God didn't apologize about it, so I'm not going to either. But as I mentioned earlier, all gifts can be perverted and distorted. That men would abuse their wives and daughters or treat them as less than equal value in God's eyes was an absolute abomination to Christ and he taught against it. He didn't teach against the God-ordained male leadership of the family. He taught against the male leadership's abuse of power and abuse of authority and, frankly, dereliction of duty to selflessly shepherd his family. Now, I tell you this because as we begin to read chapter 18, I want you to understand the context of what we're going to be reading that these instructions are being spoken of from the male point of view. That it is understood that these are instructions to Israelite men, 
not women, at every level of Hebrew society. And it also applies to the foreign men who now live within the boundaries of Hebrew society. Naturally, females are affected by these rulings. But that's primarily because of what God enjoins men from doing. So, let's read Leviticus chapter 18. Adonai said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them, I am Adonai your God. You're not to engage in the activities found in the land of Egypt where you used to live. You're not to engage in the activities found in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. Nor are you to live by their laws. You are to obey my rulings and laws and live accordingly. I am Adonai your God. You're to observe my laws and rulings. If a person does them, he'll have life through them. I'm Adonai. None of you is to approach anyone who is a close relative in order to have sexual relations. I'm Adonai. You are not to have sexual relations with your father. You're not to have sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. Do not have sexual relations with her. You're not to have sexual relations with your father's wife. That's your father's prerogative. You're not to have sexual relations with your sister, the daughter of your father, or the daughter of your mother, whether born at home or elsewhere. Do not have sexual relations with them. You're not to have sexual relations with your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter. Don't have sexual relations with them because their sexual disgrace will be your own. You're not to have sexual relations with your father's wife's daughter born to your father because she's your sister. Do not have sexual relations with her. You're not to have sexual relations with your father's sister because she is your father's close relative. You're not to have sexual relations with your mother's sister because she's your mother's close relative. You're not to have sexual relations with your father's brother. You're not to approach his wife because she's your aunt. You're not to have sexual relations with your daughter-in-law because she's your son's wife. Do not have sexual relations with her. You're not to have sexual relations with your brother's wife because this is your brother's prerogative. You're not to have sexual relations with both a woman and her daughter, nor are you to have sexual relations with her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter. They are close relatives of hers, and it would be shameful. You're not to take a woman to be a rival with her sister and have sexual relations with her while her sister is still alive. You're not to approach a woman in order to have sexual relations with her when she is unclean from her time of nida. You're not to go to bed with your neighbor's wife and thus become unclean with her. You are not to let any of your children be sacrificed to Molech, thereby profaning the name of your God, I'm at an eye. You're not to go to bed with a man as with a woman. It's an abomination. You're not to have sexual relations with any kind of animal and thus become unclean with it, nor is any woman to present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. It's a perversion. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things because all the nations which I'm expelling ahead of you are defiled with them. The land has become unclean. That's why I'm punishing it. The land itself will vomit out its inhabitants. But you are to keep my laws and rulings and not engage in any of these disgusting practices. Neither the citizen nor the foreigner living with you. For the people of the land have committed all of these abominations and the land's now defiled. If you make the land unclean, it will vomit you out too, just as it is vomiting out the nation that was there before you. For those who engage in any of these disgusting practices, whoever they may be, will be cut off from their people. So keep my charge not to allow any of these abominable customs 
that others before you have followed and thus defile yourselves by doing them. I'm Adonai, your God. You know, an appropriate name for this chapter is probably God's principles of human sexual behavior. Right? And, and, and right out of the box, we see Yehovah draw a distinction between the behaviors of the world versus the behaviors expected of Israel and those who are attached to Israel. The people are told that they are neither to continue the sexual behaviors, uh, sexual behaviors that were acceptable in the place they left behind Egypt nor to take up the sexual habits of the people who currently occupy the land that Israel will take over in the near future, the Canaanites. Now let's be clear. There is nothing we've encountered so far that says that these Israelites lived in a state of being disgusted in Egypt, nor were they particularly concerned about the immoral nature of the society that they would eventually encounter in Canaan. It was Jehovah who was disgusted. It was Jehovah who was concerned, and he was going to make Israel aware of his disgust and teach them to adopt his ways. So, so much of this was relatively new to the Israelites, and we'll discuss that a little bit in a couple of minutes. Now, I'd also like to take, have you take notice that these rules about human sexuality are presented kind of like the Ten Commandments Part 2. It, they're announced to Israel in that same kind of form. I am the Lord thy God. You shall not. And then the list of shalls and shall nots commences. And like the Ten Commandments, not much reason is given for the decisions God has made concerning how Israel will deal with sexual morality other than for the fundamental principle that I'm holy, so you're to be holy. Okay. Or that the things God prohibits are considerably more than a minor irritation to him. They're detestable. They're an abomination. He hates those behaviors. And in the positive, it says in verse 5, that those who obey these commands will enjoy life. Real life. The kind that's from God. It's, it, it's not implying, by the way, that if you break one of these laws that you'll necessarily die. Okay. Verse 6 sets up the primary dynamic upon which the bulk of what's going to follow will adhere. And it is that none of you, and remember it's referring to men, males, when it says you, none of you shall, according to most Bible texts, come near your own flesh to uncover nakedness. Or as the complete Jewish Bible says, you're not to approach anyone who's a close relative in order to have sexual relations with them. That's actually a little closer to what's being discussed here. Let's take a minute to define a couple of terms that we're going to find in many places in the Word of God. Uncover nakedness and his own flesh. Okay? What uncovering nakedness is referring to is usually the uniquely male or female body parts or it is referring to having sexual relations in general. 
And when the Bible speaks of the phrase, of his own flesh, it is referring to this developing biblical definition of close relatives. Who's a close relative? Who's of your flesh? The idea is that a man is not to have sexual relations with a female who falls within certain boundaries of those who are part of his most immediate family. So with that understanding, it makes most of the list of who a man can have sexual relations with and who he can't fairly comprehensible. But depending on your version, we can get these odd-sounding instructions. Like in verse 13. Do not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's flesh. What? What does that mean? We can easily understand an instruction that a man is not to have sex with his mother's sister, his aunt. But what is this about the aunt being her mother's flesh? Well, as you've probably figured out, it means that the mother's sister and the mother are close biological relatives. And the biblical term for being a close relative is being of somebody's flesh. But, what do we make of an earlier verse? Verse 7. Your father's... Uh, this is a strange one. Your father's nakedness, that is, the nakedness of your mother, you shall not uncover. She is your mother, you shall not uncover her nakedness. That's, the, that's what it says literally. When it speaks of a man, Uncovering his father's nakedness. When it speaks of a man uncovering his father's nakedness, is this talking about a man committing a homosexual act with his own father? No, it's not. Okay. Your father's nakedness is a possessive term. That is, it's referring to the nakedness that your father owns. In this case, it's making the point that your father owns exclusive sexual access to your mother, his wife. She is his and his alone. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time examining, very carefully at least, the, the remainder of Leviticus chapter 18. But I do want to look at these verses sufficiently that we see for ourselves that the Torah says some things that many modern liberal teachers and pastors and commentators say aren't there. And as uncomfortable as it can be to discuss deviant sexual behavior in a mixed class like this, we must do it because God sees human sexuality and its proper use and purpose as vitally important to his scheme of things. After all, the goal of Torah class is to find out what Holy, Script, Holy Scripture says rather than just assuming that certain doctrines that have developed around societal changes and political correctness over the centuries actually represent God's Word. Further, these sexual taboos, and that is primarily what we have here in Leviticus 18, a list of no-nos, is going to play an important role in how humans develop as a species. We have all known, both experientially and scientifically, that there is great danger 
and making the gene pool of one's family too small. Hence our modern laws against incest. It is interesting that with all the other absolutely terrible and often embarrassing things discussed with such frankness in the Bible that we really don't hear much direct mention in the Bible of babies born with severe birth defects that caused mixed gender. We really don't hear anything of mental retardation. Oh, I'm sure it existed in some amount, but at that time it must have been pretty insignificant, at least among the Israelites. Or there for sure would have been some mention about it and what to do about it. And a major factor that such defects were so insignificant can probably be traced to these laws that placed strict limitations on what was allowable interbreeding among humans who were related. But we must also not assume that this was all simply about biology or genetics. As with so much of what we've come to find out, about clean and unclean, sometimes there really isn't a direct correlation of the laws and commands to human danger or necessarily to human benefit that that can be easily discerned. It was a decision by God for his own good reasons and that's about the end of it. Next week, we're going to get into the dicey subject of incense, incest rather, and deviant sexual behavior.